Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. When I was a kid, breakfast was always a speedy affair on weekdays. Dad would grab his buttered English muffin on his way out the door while my brother and I scarfed bowls of cereal and mom packed our lunches for school. But Saturday morning, without fail, I always awoke to the aroma of bacon and coffee. Dad would make a giant plate of bacon to put in the middle of the kitchen table. Mom would make a stack of pancakes to go next to it. Sometimes, there would be yogurt and granola or a bowl of sliced fruit on the table as well. Oh, and I can't forget the orange juice. The smell of bacon and coffee still gets me in the weekend mood now as an adult living alone. I don't have the skills or patience to make pancakes, but I can fry bacon. I think my idea of a perfect Saturday morning is based on my childhood, because I also can't bring myself to cancel my newspaper subscription. I get the paper, yes, the physical, printed paper, six days a week. But Saturday and Sunday mornings are the only times I actually read them. I love to start a pot of coffee before going out into the morning chill to retrieve the paper from the end of my driveway, just like my dad used to. If I wake up early enough not to be spotted by any neighbors, besides the men who are actually as old as I act, I'll even go out in my robe. And that is just how I went out the Saturday morning on which this story occurred. I had started the coffee maker and put six slices of bacon on the stove. I tightened the belt on my robe a little and stepped out into the foggy morning air. Spring hadn't quite returned the life winter borrowed to the trees and bushes in my neighborhood yet. Everything still looked gray. The sky, the trees, the ground. Everything gray and made even drearier by the still fog clouding it all. But I didn't feel dreary. My paper was waiting at the end of the driveway in its little orange bag, and I had coffee and bacon waiting back inside. I scooped up my paper and turned to go back down the driveway when I stopped. There was an unwelcome splotch of color breaking up the world's monotonous gray palette. Red. Red smeared across one of my neighbor's windows. The newspaper swung like a pendulum from my clenched hand as I stood statuesque and tried to convince myself the smear wasn't what it looked like. Everything else about my neighbor's house looked normal. Their garage door was down, so I couldn't see if their cars were there or not. I approached the smeared window to try to settle my concerns. I told myself all kinds of stories during that short walk. A bird smashed into the window a delinquent kid walking by through a ketchup packet at the house in the night. Bill or Diane, my neighbors, 
had cut their hand on something and hadn't noticed until they were closing the window the night before. If the blood was from a cut, I thought, it was a bad one. Probably needed stitches. That much blood didn't come from a paper cut. When I stood directly in front of the window, I could see the red had been smeared inside the glass and struck my bird story and ketchup packet prank from the list of possibilities. The blinds had been drawn too, which gave me some comfort. At least whomever had made the mess had still been able to close the blinds. I squinted, trying to decide what exactly the smear was made of. A subtle but chilling breeze blew up my robe, and I suddenly remembered it was Saturday and I had bacon on the stove. I ran across to my house and went inside just in time to get the simmering bacon out of the pan before it started to blacken. I let relief sink in for a second, but my mind was still at my neighbor's house. My kitchen window opened up toward it, so I raised the blinds and looked out. My house is set back a little from theirs, so I can partially see the rear side of their home from my kitchen window too. What I saw there made my hands go numb. The back door was hanging open in the fog. I went searching for my phone but couldn't find it. While looking, I paused only to put on some sweatpants and the t-shirt I'd worn the night before. Later, I would remember that I had set my phone up on one of my bathroom shelves when I had brushed my teeth and had forgotten it there. But when I couldn't find it quickly, I ran over to Bill and Diane's house instead. It didn't occur to me until much later that if a crime had been committed, the perpetrator could still be inside. I went to the front door because it was closest and knocked. There was no answer. I rang the doorbell. The bell's piercing tone seemed entirely inappropriate so early in the morning, but I didn't care. If Bill and Diane were mad at me but unharmed, I would be happy. They were good people. They loved the neighborhood. They loved each other. And they got along with everyone. When the doorbell couldn't rouse a response within the house, I went through the gate into their backyard and approached the gaping back door. The house was dark inside. Not one light had been turned on yet that morning, and Bill was usually an early riser like me. Hello? I called into the dark house. A voice replied, but not one I had been hoping for. Bill and Diane's cat mewed at me and emerged from the shadowy back hallway. He, a white cat with an asymmetrical patch of black fur running down his neck and back, had red all around his mouth and throat. I swallowed hard and called out again. Bill? Diane? Well, howdy, neighbor. Bill's voice came from behind me. I spun around to see him coming out of the garage's side door in his own robe with his own orange-bagged newspaper in hand. His hard, old man's belly pushed his robe out so that no matter how tightly he wrapped it, his fuzzy chest was almost entirely exposed. What brings you over this early? he asked. Your door, I said, pointing to the open back door. It looked like someone might have broken in during the night. Oh, Bill chuckled. I probably left that thing open on my way out here. Appreciate you checking on us, though. Say, Diane's making pancakes if you want to join. Must get lonely over there all by yourself. We think about you sometimes, you know? I smiled at him, about to turn him down, but then I remembered the bacon I had just finished cooking. Pancakes and bacon on a Saturday morning, just like when I was a kid. How about I run home and grab the bacon I just cooked first, I asked. 
Oh, Diane's gonna kill me if my heart doesn't do me in first, but yes, son, go grab that bacon. Bill grinned like a little boy as he went inside. He called after me, Just let yourself in when you come back. I couldn't believe I had been so worried. The friendly exchange with Bill had set me right at ease, and now I was looking forward to a wonderful meal and good company to kick off the weekend. The 180-degree turn the morning had just taken made me feel high. My head swam in swishing sludge that made me feel separate from the rest of my body as I walked through the gate. This feeling lingered longer than it should have, and as I wrapped the bacon in tinfoil, I wondered if I had a new reason to be worried. I paused in the kitchen for a minute to close my eyes and breathe deeply. After a minute or two, I managed to bring my mind back into my body. I went to the front door again when I returned to Bill and Diane's. I tried to let myself in like Bill had said, but the door was locked. Bill must have assumed I'd come to the back door again. On my way around the house, I passed the red-streaked window once more. I made a note to ask Bill and Diane about it. And the cat. Can't forget the cat. I found the back door still swinging open, which struck me as odd, but didn't stop me from going in. I closed the door behind me and almost hit the cat. I wish I could remember its name, as it ran through the narrowing gap and between my legs. It snuck down the hallway and disappeared. I've got bacon, I called down the dark hallway. Still dark. That struck me as odd. I didn't smell pancakes cooking or hear the clinks and scrapes that usually accompany kitchen activities either. I called out, Bill? Diane? A clucking clock's even tempo was the only sound in the house for a few tense seconds. Down here. Diane's voice finally came from behind a door and far away. She didn't sound very excited, and I hoped Bill hadn't prematurely invited me. I had been there often enough to know that door led down to the basement. Bill and Diane had a nice finished basement with a fully furnished den. It even had a pretty wooden bar where Bill would mix drinks for guests. They also had a kitchenette down there, and I wondered if that was where Diane was making pancakes for some reason. You want me to leave the bacon in the kitchen? I called down the stairs. No one replied, so I made an executive decision and went to the kitchen anyway. I could bring the bacon down later if we were going to eat in the basement for some reason. The countertops were spotless and everything was put away. It didn't look like anything had been touched since the night before, which included the coffee pot. It sat cold and dry in its cozy nook. I knew Bill and Diane were caffeine addicts like myself so it didn't make sense to me why they hadn't also started their coffee maker first thing in the morning like me. Maybe they're trying to cut back, I reasoned. I set the plate of bacon down on the bare countertop and returned to the stairs, observing, as I walked, the unwelcoming stillness of the house. And if I paused, I noticed that gentle force that wanted to separate my mind had started tugging at my thoughts again. The feeling, I realized, was not unlike dreaming. It wasn't unpleasant, but it didn't make me feel safe either. As I looked down the stairs, it appeared no lights had been turned on in the entire basement. I hit the switch and went down. Diane, you still down here? I asked. No answer. Bill? No answer. By this time, I had become nervous. The feeling of being unwelcome I'd had upstairs not only increased, but evolved until I felt I was trespassing. I felt like I had stumbled into something dangerous, something I was not supposed to see. 
At the bottom of Bill and Diane's stairs are three doors, one to the left and two to the right. The one on the left goes into that big lounge I told you about. That's where I looked first. I opened the door into the dark lounge. As I presumed from the top of the stairs, not one light had been turned on. Diane was nowhere in sight, and certainly not in the quiet kitchenette. I whispered her name into the dark, but didn't expect or receive an answer. I shut the door again. One of the other doors led me into the laundry room, which I had never seen before. My polite nature told me I was intruding, but I had a bad feeling that it didn't matter. All of the strangeness was too much to write off, and I couldn't forget what had brought me over here in the first place. The longer it took me to find Bill and Diane, the more convinced I became that the smear on the window upstairs was blood, but also that no one had cut themselves accidentally. As if to make sure I remembered the mystery that had brought me over, the cat rubbed against my leg and meowed. I wondered if he had been fed yet, and guessed probably not. He stayed on my heels when I left the laundry room. I checked the last door. I'd expected to find a bathroom, but instead opened it to find a walk-in pantry loaded with canned food, bags of rice and dried beans, sacks of flour, cases of water, tins of coffee. Bill and Diane could have lived for months off of what they had stored down there. A pull-string light hung from the ceiling in the middle of the pantry, and I yanked the cord, lighting the small room up. Most of the shelves were mounted to the walls, but the aluminum one in the back was on wheels. It stuck out crooked from the wall, and there was something, a blanket or quilt, sticking out from behind it. In a home that was otherwise so tidy and orderly, this seemed odd to me. I grabbed the shelf and rolled it away from the wall. The blanket I had seen, for it had been a blanket, was sticking out of a square opening in the wall that gave access to the plumbing behind the washing machine. I found a wooden cover for the compartment that had been set aside. The pantry and laundry room were probably three feet apart, so there was three feet of semi-open space behind the wall and almost enough room to stand up in there. Within the compartment, I discovered two pillows, half a case of water, and dozens of open cans and bottles. There was also a bucket that was thankfully empty, but gave off a reek that told me what it had been used for. It was obvious someone had made this compartment into their home, and I didn't think that Bill or Diane would have fit through the opening. You hear stories about people hiding in other people's attics and basements, coming out at night to eat. I've seen harrowing videos online from security cameras catching people sneaking out of compartments just like the one I found, but you never think that stuff can happen to yourself or even someone you know. When I found the compartment, even though it was obvious what it was, I tried to come up with any other possibility, but the hideaway plus the blood. I became afraid of what I might find if I went poking around upstairs but not as afraid as I was of my next thought. If someone had been living in the basement and had murdered my neighbors, well, they might come back. And if I was here when they returned, would it be my blood smeared on a window next? I put my hand in my pocket to grab my phone and remembered I hadn't been able to find it. I knew Bill and Diane had a landline upstairs. I planned to call the police from there, then get out of the house as quickly as possible. I rolled the shelf back into place and made sure everything in the basement looked exactly the way I had found it before going back up the stairs. As I closed the basement door, my ears prickled. 
Metal groaned close behind me. Someone was turning the back doorknob. I froze. Could it be Bill or Diane? Might I have completely misunderstood what I had found in the basement? I didn't have time to answer these questions. I needed to hide. Whoever was coming through that door was going to see me in the hallway as soon as they walked in. The cat darted between my legs, almost making me scream. It ran, as if also retreating from the person at the back door, and slid through a door in the hallway that had been left cracked open. I didn't want to be alone, and figured a cat's company would be better than none. I followed it into the room, and closed the bedroom door, just as the back door shut loudly. I instantly understood why the cat had gone into that room. Bill and Diane had not fed him that morning, at least not in the traditional sense, and he was hungry. Blood had saturated the mattress and now dripped steadily onto the carpet. The cat licked at the spot beneath Bill's heavy body where he was squishing the wet mattress like a sponge. I thought I now knew why the cat's fur had been stained red, but apparently I had not yet seen the worst. Having satisfied his thirst, the cat leapt gracefully onto the bed, padded softly over to Bill's bludgeoned back, and sunk its teeth into Diane's flapping cheek where it had once been attached near her nose. The heavy wrench that had done the damage to my neighbor's faces and torsos leaned on the wall near the door. I might have grabbed it for self-defense, but it was coated in black wads of congealed blood and hair. Bill still had his arm around Diane. He had died halfway on top of her, no doubt trying to absorb the blows intended for her. The scene played in my head. I tried to stop it, but my brain's remote had run out of batteries and wouldn't respond. The basement dweller had come up, apparently having had enough of hiding or maybe feeling he would be discovered soon. He had entered the bedroom, perhaps waking the sleeping couple during his approach, perhaps not. Bill had thrown himself over Diane whenever he became aware of the attack, but once he was dead, his weight trapped her in place. Easy prey for the maniac. Blood had sprayed from both of their heads all over the walls. There were lines of droplets across the ceiling where the wrench had flung blood as the killer raised it and brought it down again and again. I thought of the window and looked at it now. The blinds were clean, so they must have been closed after the murder. If I had happened to get up in the middle of the night for a glass of water, I might have watched the massacre from my kitchen window. I put this together later on, but I assume the killer must have tried to wipe the blood off the window, hence the smear, before closing the blinds. As I took in the scene, I wondered what I had talked to in the backyard if it hadn't been Bill. Or maybe it had been. Maybe it was his soul, still going about his Saturday morning routine. Did he know he was dead when we spoke? Probably not. Why would he have invited me to breakfast? And what about the voice in the basement? Diane had said, down here. Maybe she had been leading me to the little compartment where her murderer slept. Perhaps having suffered longer, her spirit was more knowledgeable of what had transpired the night before. Everything I've just told you, every observation and thought I'd had since closing the bedroom door, passed through my mind in under ten seconds. Footsteps were coming down the hall. With horror, I realized the returning killer might want to check on his victims. As the cat tore off a bit of the back of Bill's hand and tossed it back, I slipped into the closet 
and slid the door shut as quietly as possible. Not a second later, the bedroom door opened. I couldn't see, but I could hear. There were no other sounds in the house to mask what was happening beyond the inch and a half of wood in front of my face. I feared the intruder might hear my blasting heartbeat if the air conditioner didn't turn on soon. The footsteps entered the bedroom and approached the bed. A man's tweaked voice laughed, Oh, Dad, you'll suffocate her. There was a brushing of cloth, creaking springs, and a wet squelch. Now there we are. Mom, are you all right, dear? The man's high voice had an odd note of propriety to it. He sounded like a little girl addressing her imaginary tea party guests. The bed springs squealed even louder, then settled. I didn't want to picture it, but I was pretty sure the man had just climbed into bed next to the bodies. Sorry I ran off. I needed to clear my head after our little fight. I still love you both. Do you love me? There was a wet sucking sound as he kissed one of them. Oh, thank you, Mommy. He really was talking like a child. Like their child. Not only was this man a murdering psycho, he was completely delusional. Bill and Diane hadn't had any children. Due to circumstances that were matched in tragedy only by their deaths, the lovely couple had been unable to conceive. They had given their time to various community organizations instead. Daddy, have you had your coffee yet today? No? I can make it. I know how. The bed springs squealed again as the man got off and dashed to the door. Why don't you two get dressed while I go make the coffee? I can get your clothes out. Panic. Terror. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. I balled my fists and prepared to strike. The second that door opened, I'd catch the man off guard and make a break for the back door. I heard his finger slide into that little indentation in the sliding door. I heard him grunt, but the door wouldn't move. I felt something move beside me, saw the shadows next to me shift in the corner of my eye. I turned and saw the silhouette of a large man standing beside me in the dark. Bill. There was no way Bill would have fit in the closet in life, but his ethereal form had contoured as needed. Now he was holding the back of the door, keeping it shut. I heard the killer grunt again, then make a confused sort of whine. Diane's voice whispered in my ear, Shh. The ghostly presences, friendly or no, made my stomach quiver and my hands shake. I wanted to scream and run out of that closet, but I forced myself to remain still and quiet. They were helping me. They were saving me. I couldn't help but feel afraid of them anyway, but I had to stay still. The killer took a couple of steps back. Bill's shadow shifted again in my periphery, and a shiver corkscrewed up my spine. Did you lock your closet? The killer asked in his childish voice. He laughed giddily, then said, Okay, have it your way. Stay in your pajamas if that's what you want. I'll go make the coffee now. Shuffling footsteps then a brief squeak from the hinges. Do you want the paper, Dad? The killer's voice came from behind me and made me jump. I realized he was only in the hallway, on the other side of the wall. I was alone in the closet, completely alone. The spirits had vanished from sight. 
I took my moment of safety and solitude to choose my next move. I would probably only have a couple of minutes to get to the back door while he was making coffee in the kitchen. That's when I remembered the bacon. I had left everything in the house exactly as I'd found it except for that fresh plate of bacon that now sat on the kitchen counter. I remembered it right as the killer found it. What is this? I heard him ask. His voice sounded deeper, more like an ordinary man's all of the sudden. The sharp wrinkle of aluminum rattled through the house. He asked, How did this get here? The tinfoil stopped rattling. Footsteps pounded back in my direction before I could even think about slipping out of the closet. The footsteps stopped at the bedroom. Did you two invite someone over without telling me? The killer asked. He had revived his childish impression, but couldn't hide the hue of anger tinting his tone. And did I detect worry? He slammed the bedroom door and his steps pounded elsewhere. I wondered how long before he connected his surprise guest to the closet door that had resisted him. At least with the bedroom door closed, I could come out of the closet and not be spotted immediately. I slid the door open as quietly as I could and padded out onto the carpet. The cat must have obliviously followed the murderer. I could no longer hear him, the murderer, running about the house. There was a good chance that meant he had gone to the basement, but I didn't allow myself the comfort of that thought. I had to assume he could be close enough to open the bedroom door at any moment. I could either open the door myself and run, hoping I didn't bump into the murderer on the way, or I could go out the window. The blinds were still down, but I could picture my own house just on the other side of them. It was so close, but with such a complicated barrier. I accidentally glanced at the corpses beside me and immediately looked away, but my neighbor's bodies gave me an idea. Their ghosts terrified me almost as much as their killer, and a part of me was angry with them for tricking me into the house and the basement in the first place. But Bill had held the closet door closed and bought me some time. Maybe he hadn't been aware of the danger before. I wondered if he and Diane might help me again. I whispered, barely making any sound at all. Do you know where he is? In the stillness that followed, I felt like an idiot. What was I doing, talking to ghosts? But then the bed springs creaked. I caught myself just before allowing a deadly scream to escape my lungs. Diane's hand slid limply from her stomach to her side, and a breathy moan hissed from her throat. The moan seemed to hang in the air, and at its tail end I heard a word. Laundry. It didn't come from Diane's lips, but it was her voice just the same. I took it as confirmation that I was safe to leave the room. I spared one last hesitant glance at the window and finally decided, no, that route was too risky. If the killer came back upstairs while I was still halfway through, I would be able to do little to keep him from pulling me back in, or just killing me and letting my body hang out of the window like a puppet waiting for a hand to bring it to life. Trusting Diane, I opened the door and stepped into the hallway. My very first footstep caused a creak so deep I heard another board at the end of the hall pop in response. And I wasn't the only one who heard it. A crash came from below, and hasty footsteps hammered the stairs. The stairs were far too close to the back door for me to consider that option, so I turned tail for the front door. I was in the kitchen before the footsteps reached the top of the stairs. My bacon sat cold and exposed on the otherwise empty counter. 
The kitchen led me into the living room, where it looked like the killer had spent some time relaxing after butchering his hosts. An empty quart of ice cream, an open bag of chips, and an overturned two-liter of Sprite littered the coffee table and couch. The front door stood just across the living room from me, ten or fifteen steps away, but the killer was closing in. I heard him in the kitchen, but dared not look behind me. As I crossed to the living room, I shouted into the air, Help me! I don't know who I intended to hear me, Bill and Diane, or some nearby neighbor, but I was heard. As I passed by, the couch slid across the carpet. It only moved a foot or two, but it was enough to break the killer's speed. I reached the door, slammed my hand onto the knob, and turned. The door wouldn't open. The deadbolt! I scolded myself. The precious seconds that oversight had cost me almost cost me my life. The killer was already halfway over the couch. Unless Bill and Diane had any more tricks up their ethereal sleeves, he would be on me in seconds. I twisted the deadbolt, grabbed the doorknob again, and this time, the door opened. I slammed into the glass storm door. It didn't budge. A hand came down on top of my head. Dirty fingers slid into my hair and yanked my head backwards. As I stumbled back, I lashed out with a kick at the storm door's latch. It swung open violently as I fell onto my back. The killer pounced on top of me, moving so fast I couldn't even make out his face. He was just a blur dressed in black. My feet were still raised in the air as he fell upon me, so I rolled onto my neck, brought my knees to my chest, and kicked like a mule. My feet connected with his face, and he sprawled to the side. A spoon rattled as his back slammed into the coffee table. The storm door had swung back, but the pneumatic door closer had kept it from slamming shut. It hissed as the aperture of my escape route narrowed. The killer had the advantage of landing on his side while I was still on my back. He got to his feet while I was still on my knees. There was a rock salt lamp next to the TV, and the killer picked it up. The cord ripped the light bulb and base out, so all he was left holding was the heavy hunk of pink Himalayan salt. He raised it above his head as he stepped toward me. I caught his arms on their descent. We wrestled like this, me on my knees and him pressing down with the heavy rock, while the door hissed until it clicked shut again. That click was as loud as a gunshot in my ears. It sounded like defeat. When the storm door shut, I felt like it had closed on my last chance of survival. Then, out of nowhere, a hardcover book struck my attacker in the temple. It didn't quite stun him, but it distracted him enough for me to slip out from under the rock and wrap my own hands around it. I didn't try to take the rock, but rather shoved it downward until it slipped from both of our hands. A second hardcover flew from the bookshelf and hit the killer square in the nose. I didn't waste this chance. I went straight for the door, not missing the latch this time. Finally, against all odds, I was outside. I ran to my house with the killer still on my heels. He was fast. Over a longer distance, I don't think I could have outrun him. Fortunately, I had left my own front door unlocked and managed to get inside before he caught me. I slammed the door shut behind me, but before I could set the lock, the doorknob turned again. The killer slammed into it, forcing the door open an inch. We fought, him pushing the door in and me trying to shut it, until I think we both realized we had reached a stalemate. Between you and me, if that maniac had chosen to persist, I think he could have tired me out and gotten inside. But he didn't. Probably worried about being seen by another neighbor, the killer turned tail and ran. I didn't try to see where he went, only slammed the door 
and set the lock. I collected myself while I searched for my phone again. This time, I remembered putting it on the bathroom shelf. I called 911, and the local news can tell you the rest. The police matched the killer's fingerprints and DNA to four similar killings across the country. They have yet to identify the man, but he always uses the same M.O. He sneaks in at some undetermined point, makes his home in a dark, hidden place, maybe a crawlspace, an attic, or a small basement compartment like Bill and Diane's. But he eventually grows tired of his cramped space and kills the owners to enjoy one night with full use of their home before moving on to keep from getting caught. Or so that's what the authorities believe. I think the detective who interviewed me thought I had cracked when I described the childish voice and the way the killer had called his victims mommy and dad. So, check all those little nooks and crannies in your home. Look behind those openings in your walls. Check under the porch or beneath the deck. He's still out there, and probably hiding in some unwitting family's house as I speak. Oh, as one final note, after sitting on the market for a long time, Bill and Diane's house finally sold to a young couple of newlyweds. I befriended them right away because I wanted to know if they saw, heard, or felt anything weird in the house. So far, they have not. But one day, I was raking some leaves and saw some young kids down the street playing soccer in their front yard. One of them missed the goal, and the ball started rolling toward the street. The kid playing goalie ran after it, lost in his game and probably imagining himself in the center of some arena. But I saw the delivery truck barreling down the road. I tried to yell, but the truck's engine was too loud. The driver wasn't looking far enough ahead to predict the rolling ball's path or notice the oblivious child chasing after it. But the ball defied physics and came to a sudden stop inches from the curb. The child stumbled over it but landed safely in the grass as the delivery truck came to a stop. Neither child nor driver seemed to realize how lucky they were. And I wondered if it was luck that had saved them both, or just a neighborly old couple out there keeping an eye on things. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.